Let's pray. God, we are so thankful and so blessed this morning already just to enjoy the, um, the beauty of baptism and the wonder of singing true things back to you about you, Lord. We are encouraged. Uh, we are blessed. Uh, Lord, I hope and pray that this morning that you are blessed by people that have just uh, gathered just to bring all that we are to you and bring that all, of the, all we need to you, Lord, to seek your face, to seek your uh, truth, your guidance, your direction, uh, to be equipped this morning, Lord. I pray that all those things will happen and in all of that, that it's a sweet offering to you. Lord, we want to pray for another church in our community this morning. We want to pray for Rants More and Faith Outreach. Uh, thankful for the um, long uh, ministry that Rance has had to our community. We're thankful for the ministry of Faith Outreach uh, to so many people. For uh, Lord, we are just pray that you would bless uh, the church and bless Rance and his family. Lord, I pray that he would be uh, guided by and fueled by, uh, governed by, sustained by, first and foremost, worship. Lord, I pray that would be his uh, bread and butter uh, as it uh, guides him in preparation for teaching and preaching and preparation and shepherding, Lord, that he would be um, uh, first and foremost a worshiper. Lord, that he would secondly be a husband and um, uh, a father and a pastor, Lord, and I just pray that in that um, pursuit as he pursues you and seeks your your face that the church at um, faith outreach would be blessed we pray that they would have some of the problems that uh, we all hope for seating uh, issues and parking issues and uh, space for children and uh, classroom space and all those great problems Lord, we pray they'll be faithful in discipling the saints equipping the saints lord we uh, just put them in front of you this morning and ask you to bless them Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for a people group, and we're praying for the Yemeni Arabs, um, 6.4 million people, of which there are 0. 0.00 Christians. Lord, I pray this morning as we just consider for a moment that kind of darkness and that kind of lostness. Or the first of all, that we can put that people group at your feet and know that you love that people group. Lord, as we lift them before you and ask you to draw them to you and to draw people in that people group to you, that a, a people might be born within them, your people might be born within them. Lord, we pray for workers to grow uncomfortable with um, life here uh, and a burden. Um, compelling burden to go and tell and sow and love and minister and be one of your saints in the far corners. Lord, we uh, um, just ask you to be glorified uh, in and through the Yemeni uh, people right now and draw them to you. Lord, we are thankful that we uh, this morning have an opportunity to gather as a people and pray that this will be a, a time where we celebrate uh, in some ways what it means to be your people. Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been here. Um, we've been in Matthew for some time now. In Sermon on the Mount, I guess the last uh, couple of months, uh, we're in the Beatitudes. It's the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's a collection of sayings. They're really a collection of sayings from Christ on what it means to be happy and how to find happiness. The term that we've used instead of blessedness is flourishing. So I'm going to read this passage, and I will, I'm just going to replace blessedness with flourishing, and I'm going to also replace for with because. 
because that's a better handling of the motivation for each of these um, Beatitudes, beginning in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Flourishing are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be, because they shall be comforted. Flourishing are the meek, because they shall inherit the earth. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they shall be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful, because they shall receive mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart, because they shall see God. Flourishing are the peacemakers. Because they shall be called sons of God. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about these Beatitudes, he said, there's nothing in the whole of Scripture which so tests and examines and humbles as these Beatitudes. I am um, just reading them and kind of taking time, replacing some of the words that we've, we've handled in these last few weeks and reading them. Man, I'm just overwhelmed with... Uh, what a humbling, incredibly humbling passage of Scripture. I have experienced personally, um, I hope we have corporately, um, some measure of decreation as we've worked through these Beatitudes. Decreation, I had a, a young man ask me last week, he said, what did you mean by that? I meant sort of a disintegration. That we come in here as individuals. I'm looking at some of your faces and I can name you as you come in here as a, as a person. But you leave more like Christ. You're, as you're, you're experiencing some sort of disintegration, sort of decreation, but then you're reintegrated into a person that l- looks like and moves like Christ. That's ideally what's happening in this passage. And man, it is a profound, disintegrating, decreating passage, but it's also profoundly integrating and recreating into the person and character of our Lord. Man, this peacemaking has been the one that we have... Um, Spent uh, last week and this one on, and uh, man, it is one of the most difficult in my uh, experience. Um, I think one of the things that I think it's important for us to think about, when we talk about expository preaching, I had a, a brother remind me of this recently. Expository preaching is exposing, first and foremost, what it meant then. In order to understand what it means to us, we want to expose what it meant then. Let me just kind of acquaint you with the shocking message that this would have been 2,000 years ago, in regards to peacemaking. These guys on this hillside that day, 2,000 years ago, we don't know any of their names other than, than the disciples. Uh, we don't know who else was there other than the 12. Uh, but it was a crowd, apparently. Uh, we can know, too, we can trust, just from what we understand of context, that they on that hillside that day expected a liberator. They expected a king. They expected, in some ways, a warrior to liberate them from the hand of Rome. What's mostly unknown to us, unless you've studied ancient history um, or read the Apocrypha, some of you may have a Catholic background and may have spent some time reading the Apocrypha, is the time between the Testaments and some interesting influences of the time between the Testaments. They greatly influenced the context of the New Testament. We often talk about the context of the Roman Empire 
as an immediate context for the New Testament, but sometimes we leave out the previous context that certainly would have influenced the minds and hearts of folks on this hillside that day. After Alexander the Great's death, the Greek Empire was divided up by his four generals into four parts. Okay? Enter the Seleucid Empire. I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm going to go just enough to where you can appreciate how profound the words were on this hillside 2,000 years ago. Enter the Seleucid Empire and a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. This guy was a royal winner. I mean, Antiochus Epiphanes is what he named himself, and it actually means God incarnate. <laughs> He's not the kind of guy you want to go hang out with. You know what I mean? He's going to be a beatdown. This guy had it in for Jews. Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, which meant he was like he was crazy. They didn't call him that to his face. But Antiochus Epiphanes had it in for the Jews. He hated the Jews so much, in fact, that he raided the temple and he pull, pulled all the artifacts or all the, all the instruments and devices of worship out and he sacrificed a pig in there and slung pig fat all over the Holy of Holies. You know, that's where Hanukkah comes from. If you've noticed in your Old Testament, you don't see anything about Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah came from the cleansing of the temple after that, the feast and festival of lights, where they're like, get the pig fat out of here. Get any Antiochus Epiphanes out of here. And all of his nasty um, sacrifice, pagan sacrifice in our temple context. This guy had it in for Jews. A man named Mattathias, or Mattathias, a Jewish priest in Jerusalem, had had enough. So when a Greek official ordered him to officiate a pagan sacrifice at the direction of Antiochus Epiphanes, he refused and then killed a Jew who had agreed to do the sacrifice. And then he killed smartly, I guess with a knife. From what I recall, it was just like a dagger. Killed the official that came to, to give the, the direction to have the sacrifice. And this started a revolution. It's called the Maccabean Revolution, the Maccabean Revolt. It was mostly led by his son, Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus was called the Hammer. I'm waiting for the movie to come out because it's going to be awesome. I mean, you can just see it already. The Hammer and his dad, Mattathias, bringing it down on the Seleucids. This started a revolution mostly led by his son, Judas Maccabeus, and the liberation from the Greek Empire all the way up till 37 B.C., Okay, we're talking about a narrow little space between then and when Christ was born and when his ministry began and when he's standing on this mount preaching these words. And then in 37 B.C., Herod, as a pawn of the Roman Empire, took control of Judea. This situation was fresh on that hillside that day. Somebody's showing up and talking about servanthood or somebody's showing up and talking about turning the other cheek and somebody showing up talking about peacemaking would have raised some eyebrows. Like, are you kidding me? Do you realize the Holocaust is further from us in time than this experience was from them on that hillside that day? Man, they brought that all to that hillside this day. This was fresh. Peacemaking? Ha, give me a break. Man, it was shocking then, and I can guarantee if we're really taking it in and appreciating, it's shocking now. Something you may not realize is a man um, 
is zealots. Let me just kind of give you a little background here. Zealots were really appealing on up even into and through the time of Christ. Someone who had a lot of zeal for uh, the, the Jewish story and had zeal against Rome and empire and wanted to be free from all that. They were super appealing. They were heroes in some ways. And in fact, there was a man that, was, that, that uh, the people uh, shouted for in place of Jesus on the day of his, uh, on the night of his arrest, the day of his crucifixion, a man named Barabbas was a zealot. We often envision this guy as just this sort of Sam Cobra wearing a black hat, just this evil thief or something like that. This guy was a zealot. He was pushing a back against Rome. This guy, Barabbas, according to Mark and Luke, led an uprising against Rome. And the word that was chosen in John for bandit is the same word the ancient historian Josephus used for revolutionist. It makes a profound statement where they're saying, give us Barabbas, give us the Messiah that we want, not the Messiah that we need. Give us the Messiah that's going to liberate us from the stuff that we see, not this other stuff that is less important. Give us a Messiah that will liberate us from Rome. Peacemaking was a shocking notion, and it probably wasn't very popular. You can imagine the commentary after this sermon. Did you hear what he said? What do you think, Billy Bob? I don't know. I think he's crazy. Peacemaking. Where's Barabbas? I mean, I wonder for us if peacemaking, if we're really honest, if we can reckon with how unnatural this is too for us now, it is the most, at least in my experience, the most unnatural thing in the world to step into conflict or to press into conflict. What's natural for me when I experience conflict is run away. Avoid it, run away from it, stiff arm it, play like it's not there, do whatever I have to do to not deal with it. It is a very unnatural thing to make peace because, frankly, the whole notion is not of this world. But the good thing is, nor are those who follow Christ. Man, we have some good resources in these Beatitudes because each of them, I've shared with you in the previous weeks that each of them, uh, there's this protasis, this first thing, this sort of unsavory. And I think I've mentioned them. If, I'm, if I haven't, we read them. They're poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercy and pure in heart. That's sort of this disintegrating thing. But they each have a motivation that goes along with them. The protasis, you look at him and you go, ah, that sounds terrible. It sounds like I'm going to be completely undone. But the apodosis is the second part of each of these beatitudes. And this one has a wonderful apodosis. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the ones who are doing this crazy, impossible, unnatural thing because they shall be called sons of God. That's the wonderful, wonderful promise and apodosis. In this beatitude, I want to take this morning and just sort of unpack this apodosis because they shall be called the sons of God. I want to know why that's a motivation. I want you all to know that, hopefully. Why is it a motivation? First of all, I'm going to be dealing with how, um, how it's a motivation in kind. And secondly, dealing with the motivation is how it's a motivation in identity. Being called sons of God, how that's a motivation in kind and then in identity. So first look, just right across the page in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. We're going to look and consider first how being called sons of God is a motivation in kind. Look at verse 43, and I'll explain that. You don't have to understand that just yet. 
You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, I don't know who said that. <laughs> That's a natural statement. That's not in our Bibles. Okay, a lot of what Jesus says in the New Testament or, or in the Sermon on the Mount, he holds these things up. You have heard that it was said this, but I say this. A lot of them come out of the law. That didn't come out of the law. God never said you should hate your enemies. Okay, I think he's speaking to the natural man there. He's speaking to our natural uh, inclination toward enemies is to hate our enemies. Okay, he says, you've heard that it said... Love your enemy, hate your or love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may, may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's just really the sort of a, a, a nice little uh, window into what he's talking about here. This contrast between what I'm going to call the sons of Adam and Eve and the sons of God. The sons of Adam and Eve love their neighbor. Who doesn't? Right. That's not hard. Love your neighbor, the good neighbor. Now, the one that's difficult, that's a little more, that's, that's different. But loving your neighbor is usually the easy part. Hating your enemy also comes very naturally. And the sons of Adam and Eve come by that very naturally. The sons of God, though, love their enemy and they pray for their persecutor. These contrasting, the sons of Adam and Eve and sons of God. And it's a beautiful notion of why we would want to be about the work of peacemaking because we will be called sons of God. There's something profound about this window into the movement of God here and what he's saying. Now, let me just kind of um, help you kind of visualize this. Um, I've been doing some counseling with Bryce and Rainey to get ready for their wedding. Where are they? Are they in here? Are they? Are they, are they they're in the nursery. Okay, good. All right. I can talk about them when they're over there. <laughs> when I'm talking with Bryce, uh, I feel like I'm probably, like I almost wonder if I'm, if this is exactly like what it would have been to talk like with Bud or talk with Bud 30 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't know how many years it would be, 40 years ago, Bud, there he is. Like it's sort of, uh, you know, this new and little or younger version of Bud that I'm, I'm visiting with. The point I think that's developing here in this little window in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, is that sons look like and move like their fathers. I don't know what it is about Western wear. Guys that wear Western wear and then dress their kids up in Western wear. You see the little cowpoke walking around behind his cowboy dad and he looks just like his dad. He's walking like him. He talks like him. He has the same mannerisms. That's sort of the window of what's being developed here. Sons look like and move like their fathers. So this thought here is walking like and talking like Adam are walking and talking like our father who is in heaven. Are we going to talk and walk like the worldly representative and the worldly father are we going to talk like and walk like and move like our otherworldly father are we going to move in the natural or are we going to move in the supernatural here's what's so wonderful about this sort of motivation for being about the work of peacemaking and being called the son of god being called the son of god means we're looking like and moving like our father the very same god who took the initiative to step into our enmity in the person and work of the Son, to step into our mess. He didn't do what comes natural for me. I shared with you, when I experience conflict, I'm going to pull away. But our Father who is in heaven took the initiative and said, I'm going to step into this mess. I'm going to come in here and I'm going to make peace. And that way we'll be moving like our Father. He took the initiative, not while being just some sort of spectator and some sort of witness, but also being the hated he didn't step into a fight between two people and try and break it up. He stepped into a fight where he's the hated one. 
And he's the one that actually took the sacrifice to bring some sort of healing and some sort of resolution there. He took the initiative to make peace with his enemies, and he did it by the blood of Jesus. God the Son walked like and talked like no other ever has before or since. And for those who are united to him by faith, we can in some way, in some semblance, walk out what he has accomplished for us. Following him means that we will walk like him and we will seek and work at peace like our Father in heaven. Man, that's a beautiful, beautiful motivation. Not doing the natural thing, getting even, not hating, but instead praying and loving and working at peace despite the bloody cost. A truly distinct and unique people standing in stark contrast in a decaying world. That's the product here. That's the first motivation, in kind. The second motivation here has to do with identity. This encouragement, this you are to be about, or you are as, as identified as followers of Christ, you are peacemakers because you shall be called sons of God. This second motivation connects to the notion of being God's people. Followers of Christ make peace because they're God's people as followers of Christ. That's who they are. Let me give you a little window into this. This one's a little more complicated than the other one that we had over in Matthew chapter 5. Turn a couple pages over to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. This one's a little subtler, if that's a word. A little less obvious. The first little window, this first because we're dealing with um, what kind of movement we have when we move and take the initiative in making peace, that we're moving in kind like our Father who is in heaven. This, though, has to do with moving as being an an identified part of God's people. Okay, Matthew chapter 2 verse uh, 15 gives us a little window into something that I think will be an encouragement to you, I hope. I'm going to begin in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Okay, we know we're talking about baby Jesus here, right? You know the context where we are. We're talking about baby Jesus, that he's a baby at this point, or a child. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is a very important passage in the book of Matthew. This is like a window into getting at what Matthew is really getting at. This is like, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie with Nicolas Cage where he's uh, figuring out the money codes and all that. What's the name of the movie? Some, where's... where's yeah, National Treasure. I think there was a couple of them, weren't there? Yeah, those are good movies, and it's kind of exciting where he, he finds some sort of clue. This is a clue to get at what Matthew's getting at. This little reference is pointing back to a passage in the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet in the 8th century to Israel, and Hosea said these words in Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, he's speaking of a people. When Israel was a child, he's speaking metaphorically as a child. I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What he's referring to there is the Exodus, if you know the story of this people. 
And this message in Hosea is God's unfailing covenant love for a disappointing, relentlessly disappointing Israel. That's the context that Matthew is inviting us to consider. He's telling the story of baby and child Jesus at this point, but it's not just a bunch of facts. He's given us a window into Christ being the new and better son. Okay, Israel was his son, and now Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of the faithful Israel. He's going to be the new Israel. Jesus is the faithful son, and those who unite to him by faith become part of a new Israel. Okay, stick with me for a moment. I hope you'll hope this land here in a moment. When you do that, when you unite to Christ by faith, you join a faithful remnant of old Israel that looked forward to the Messiah. Okay, that's one thing. You also join a group of people who embraced and followed the Messiah as the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. You join a man like Simeon who couldn't wait for the Christ child to be born, who held him up and said, okay, you can take me home today. I have seen your salvation for Israel. Okay, you join him. You join Anna, the prophetess. You join also a great cloud of witnesses who have gone on before us since Christ, who trusted in Christ. And then fourth, those are three things there. You join a faithful remnant of old Israel who looked forward to the Messiah. You join those who embraced and followed the Messiah as he walked and lived and preached. And then we join those in the great cloud of witnesses since then. And then fourth, we join a people, a current living organic people called the church, the people of God, i.e. the sons of God. Man, I hope y'all made that journey with me. I've been so nervous about that all weekend. What was clear up here, I hope, is at least somewhat clear as mud out there. When he's talking about this motivation for being about this difficult, excruciating work of peacemaking, he's saying, do it because your father is doing it and did it in the personal work of Christ. But do it also because you're the people of God. You're the sons of God. By your union with Christ by faith, you are now part of this people. Matthew's telling a story of a continued people. Matthew's hearkening back to the promises made to Abraham of a people that would be born through the fiery trial of the ordeal in Egypt, who would survive and then be taken to a promised land, who would be liberated from that fiery trial, would be taken to a promised land. He's continuing that story in and through the person and work of Christ. So those who unite to him by faith are continuing that story of a people. Matthew's main point is the continuation of this blessed Happy, flourishing people. The story of the sons of God, the people of God. Okay, I have three passages I'd like for you to look at. And they're all pretty much together. And then we're going to land the plane. Okay, this is important. I really want you to look there. Deuteronomy chapter 4. The next one is Deuteronomy chapter 7. So you can kind of have that ready. And the last is Deuteronomy chapter 33. So if Matthew has sort of opened the door for us to look back at the old Israel, okay, the old son, to make sense of our identity with the new son, as a motivation for peacemaking, okay, if he's taken us back to look at this people, let's look at how awesome it was for this people to be the people of God. If this is truly to be a motivation for us, we have to understand how it would have been a motivation for them. Okay? All right. So here's just a couple passages. and These are delightful. They are delightful. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. 
Just context. Moses is writing and speaking from, I don't know if he's preaching from Nebo, but he's on the mountain that can oversee into the promised land. He's led them through the wilderness. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, context-wise. They're looking over into the promised land. Moses is not going into the promised land. Moses is writing the book of Deuteronomy. He's giving them, in some ways, a charge as they go into the promised land and into the conquest. And he's giving them, in many ways, a reminder of the story. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? Now, I look at the Hittites, I look at the Jebusites, I look at the Canaanites, I look at the Amorites, I look at all the Philistines. None of them have a God as near as we do. It's awesome being part of the people of God, isn't it, nation of Israel? That's what Moses is saying. Who in the world has a God like we have? And then the next part of that. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Who in the world has a set of statutes and laws like our God does? Who in the world has a God so near to them? Man, I'm thinking about, indeed, they didn't even have Christ yet. They didn't even have the Holy Spirit indwelling and living in his people yet. As we look back through the lens of the cross, man, can we really agree with this? Absolutely. It is unbelievable. Do we have a God so near? Who in the world has a God so near? Our God actually put on flesh and showed up in our mess. Our God, then when he departed and ascended to the Father's right hand, he sent us the comforter and counselor to live in us and among us. Who in the world has a God so near? It's awesome being part of the people of God. That's just one little window. Here's another, just a few pages over in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Thank you, Matthew, for taking us back to these beautiful windows into how awesome it is to have this God as our God. In verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it's not because you're more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It's not because you're the best and the brightest. It's not because you're the most handsome. It's not because you're really funny and he just wanted to bring you on board. It's because he set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because this Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Man, what, what an unbelievable God. What a marvel, first of all, that this God would set his love on any people, much less this people. And you look back at the story of Israel and you look back, if you read Hosea chapter 11, man, you go, what a disappointing people. And then you find some encouragement when you go, ah, I'm quite a disappointment so often. But then you're reminded that we have a God that has a relentless love for his people. And then Matthew connects the dot for us to see that we are the continued story of this people. Talk about a motivation for being about hard things. I can handle that motivation for being about hard things like the work of peacemaking because I have a God like nobody else. We have a God like nobody else. We have a God that is so near. We have a God that has set his love on us. We have a God that has chosen us. We have a God that treasures us. Man, seriously, that is some seriously good medicine. Look over at Deuteronomy chapter 33. As you're turning there, I... 
Scholars, I'll give you a second to turn there and just share this brief thought with you. Scholars believe that Deuteronomy chapter 33, it's the next to last chapter before the end of Deuteronomy. The next chapter is Moses croaks. All right, it's like the end of Moses' story. They're about to go into the promised land. This is a profound chapter. This is a chapter where he blesses the 12 tribes. So scholars believe that this chapter where he blesses those 12 tribes is the template for the Beatitudes. That would be kind of like Jesus to show up and be thinking about the rest of the story, right? <laughs> It'd make a whole lot of sense for us to add some context and contours and shape to this thing like he did. Thankfully, we can look back and let me just show you just a tiny little window at the very end of this chapter of blessing on the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm thinking about as Jesus is preaching on this mount, he's preaching over 12 disciples. That's no accident people. He's continuing the story of a fulfillment of a promise made to Abraham. And look what he says. Happy are you, O Israel. Mm, blessed are you, O Israel. Complete and whole are you, O Israel. Flourishing are you, O Israel. You see those images, all this, that we've, these that we've considered over in the Beatitudes. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. Who indeed is like this people who are saved by the Lord? Man, thank you for this picture into the old Israel to understand the new Israel, Matthew, because this changes things for me. I, instead of considering the work of peacemaking only pragmatically, which is my temptation for nearly everything. Hey, does this work or not? I mean, what's the saying? If you want to keep doing, I can't, I can't remember the saying right now. Keep on doing the same dumb things, get the same dumb outcome kind of thing. Man, that's the way I think about everything. Put your hand in that stove, you're going to get burned, you don't know that again. Step off into the really grueling, difficult work of peacemaking again, and you go, ah, no thanks. But this changes the motivation, and it says, no, you're going to do that because that's who you are. Nobody else has a God like you. Nobody is treasured like you. Nobody has been chosen like you. Man, you indeed, who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. That's why you'll walk this out. Not as pragmatists, but you'll walk it out as worshipers. A completely different motivation. Completely different motivation. Man, Matthew apparently had that happy people in view when he's writing to this people in the Gospel of Matthew. And it seems really clear, at least to me, that Jesus had that people in view as he's preaching to this people. And it seems like he has this story of a people and the continuation of a people in view when he presents the wonderful motivation for the otherworldly and excruciating work of peacemaking. They shall be called sons of God the people of God. Man, who has a God like us? This has to matter, people of God at Crosspoint Fellowship. This identification as the sons and the people of God has to matter. It is the only way for us to faithfully walk out who we are called to be. It is the only motivation that will fuel stepping off into very difficult ventures knowing this is who I am. 
We are to be guided by who we are. We are not just giving each week a list of activities. Each week, hopefully, you're hearing a reminder of instead of activities, you are hearing a reminder of your identity. You realize those are two very different motivations. Two very different motivations. This is who you are. Peacemaking. It's how we walk because it's how our Father walks. And it's what we do because it's who we are. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful. We are so thankful that you have set your love on us. God, we are so thankful that we together can say, who is like you? And who is like us, a people that are saved by you? Lord, I pray that just for a moment, this, that today we are scandalized almost, just at the notion of being called your people. And Lord, I pray it will change our motivation for how we move with one another. Decreating things, Lord, I pray that the outcome will be that we walk like and move like your son. Lord, I pray the outcome will be a salty and bright people. And Lord, I pray all of that will be for your glory. Lord, I am entrusting this people, I'm entrusting myself and my family to you to ask you to work this in us. Give us a joy just in being called yours. Praying these things in Christ's name. Amen.